There's a story that's related in the Talmud that tells us that there was once some Gentile who approached Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai is one of the two great rabbis of Judaism in like the generation that preceded Yeshua. Or, yeah, preceded Yeshua. And this Gentile said, kind of issuing a challenge to him, said that he would convert to Judaism immediately if Rabbi Shammai could teach him the entire Torah while he stood on one foot. Now, Shammai, as one of the two great rabbis of his generation, he was known for his very stern demeanor and his very strict application of the law. Therefore, it's not surprising that Shammai's response to this challenge was to chase the man off with a rod. No time for such foolishness, for, for foolish people like that. The story then continues that this same Gentile then went to the other great rabbi of that day, Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel is known for being more tolerant in his application of the law. The man made the same request to him. And Hillel answered, answered the man, and he says, and he said, What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. Don't do to your neighbor what's hateful to you. That is the whole Torah. The rest is just commentary. Go and learn it. And Hillel's answer does very well in getting us very close to the root of Torah that he teaches that love of one's neighbor is at the heart of God's instruction. However, I argue that Hillel's response doesn't quite hit the mark. It comes very close to it, but it doesn't quite hit the mark. And the reason being is his answer is in, the neg is in a negative form, meaning don't do something. If it's hateful to you, don't do it. But such an answer actually ends up giving us permission to, to be passive towards our neighbors. And what I mean by this is that by focusing on what's forbidden, what one would not want done to oneself, it limits love in the sense of only reframing from what is harmful. You know, don't harm others, which is a good principle to live by. But and certainly, you could even argue as you read the Torah that it often speaks that way. It speaks in the negative. Even just think of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Statements. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Shall not bear false witness. Shall not covet. These types of commandments here, the ones I just listed, that deal more with, again, the commandments of the horizontal commandments of how do we relate to um, other people, these types of commandments are known as mishpatim, meaning that they're said to be self-evident, that humans would have come up with these laws on their very own, based on just experience and based on reason. They didn't actually require God to reveal them to us. And if we apply then Hillel's summary of the Torah, his statement we can see why these would be self-evident. So use this principle that Hillel lays down of don't do to others as you would, don't want them to do unto you. 
you can, if you're just use that as a principle of how do you go about living your life, these, uh, these commandments here, yeah, they, they are pretty much self-evident. I don't want someone to kill me, so I shouldn't murder them. I don't want someone to steal my wife. I don't want someone to steal my property, so I won't do that to others. I don't want someone to lie about my character. I don't want someone to frame me for, and say I did something that I didn't do, so I don't do that to others. Such reasoning is very easy to follow. And it's why I would say that we actually find Hillel's statement regarding how to treat one's, one another's neighbors. He wasn't the first actually to say it. And you actually find it throughout Eastern Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cultures that pre even predate him. Statements similar to Hillel's that focuses on not acting negatively towards others they're found in ancient Egypt and India, Persia, Greece, Rome, all the way up to 700 years before Yeshua and Rabbi Hillel's times. So it's a very good principle, but it's actually not that original. And even today, many people are satisfied with just making this the cornerstone of their morality, of how they behave towards others. Whether they want to get deep into political philosophy and they want to go after someone like they you know they want to quote someone like John Stuart Mill who wrote the liberty of the individual must be thus far limited he may not make himself a nuisance to other people or they maybe just paraphrase the more humorous epitaph that the right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins the sentiment in these Statements or these quotes are the same as what Hillel's summary of the Torah was. What's hateful to you, don't do it. Don't do that to your neighbor. And a morality defined in this negative sense of simply don't do things that are harmful, that are negative, that would cause, you know, would be, that you don't want done to you, I think they're attractive for three reasons. First of all, such morality only deals with the external self. An individual who follows this axiom only needs to worry about his or her actions. Whereas his or her thoughts and his or her feelings, they can be as wicked and as vile as they like. As long as I don't murder someone, or even if I refrain from physically harming someone else, that's all I need to do. It doesn't matter that I hate them, that I hold a grudge against them, that I desire bad things to happen to them. I haven't violated the Torah because I'm not acting it out if we follow this line of reasoning. Likewise, as long as I don't physically commit adultery, it's fine if I or someone else would give in to lusts and fantasize about people other than my spouse. It's very easy to kind of live by this standard of just don't do harmful things. Second, such an approach to morality and loving one's neighbor requires very little of you. Again, if it's simply don't do things that would be harmful to others, don't do things you don't want people to do to you, it doesn't actually require you to do much. And simply being passive, being lazy, ends up kind of essentially getting you to living a righteous life, if this is your standard. If I simply don't do anything, all of a sudden, I'm doing something righteous if we live by this standard. And third, 
it allows people to live in a world more free of judgment. Because again, as long as you don't interfere with other people, you're, you're in good standing. How many times have you heard as a defense of someone's behavior that if no one's being harmed, well, what does it matter? Why should it concern you? Or if some action is between consenting adults, who are we to judge that that's right or that's wrong? The implied assertion in such statements is that if one person is not doing anything that the other person does not like, then they are not committing an unjust act. And therefore, the reasoning can continue, and some people take it to this, you can't consider that a sin. And while many disciples of the Mashiach can easily see the problems with these three defenses of such a moral stance, they can also be prone to falling into the trap of believing they are free from the, pers the persuasion of sin by simply focusing on restricting your negative, their negative actions. The focus on what is typically known as sins of contrition, or sins that occur when an individual acts against a commandment. When these, when we, if we limit it just to the focus, the focus on these types of sins, we can acknowledge, and in some instances, instances rightfully, that, hey, I don't murder, I don't steal, I remain faithful to my spouse, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't try to deceive others, I don't use bad language, I don't gossip, gossip and on and on. Now certainly, those who have been able to overcome or who are in the process of overcoming such temptations of the flesh due to the work of the Holy Spirit in them, well, that is good. That's a good thing, and they should be thankful for that. But if we only focus on avoiding actions we shouldn't carry out, we've not really loved our neighbor as ourselves. We really haven't followed the commandment that Yeshua laid down and Yeshua, as God, laid down when he gave the commandment in Leviticus. Now, all this being said, I assume when I, met, when I said Hillel's statement, that it, did, it wasn't exactly right, but it did sound familiar to you. Because it does use similar verbiage to Yeshua's summary of the Torah. Matthew 7, 12 states, Therefore, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So you get a summary statement by Yeshua right there. And again, it follows kind of the same pattern as what Hillel laid out. But there's one big key difference. Yeshua makes it a positive statement that directs our actions rather than a negative one that prohibits them. And the difference is monumental in our understanding of God's instructions and what it truly means to love one's neighbor. Yeshua doesn't allow us to take a passive approach to our neighbor. But rather, he is saying that the summary of the law and the prophets is that we have to be active in our lives, acting in ways that demonstrate our love towards others. Throughout Yeshua's teachings on the Torah, he emphasizes that it is not enough to merely avoid doing what is wrong. Yes, you're supposed to do that, but we must actively work in service to others in order to genuinely demonstrate our concern for their well-being. In fact, as I hope to show you this morning, Yeshua's teachings in the gospel show a greater concern for what is called sins of omission. That is, those sins where we fail to do what God expects us to do. 
While it is righteous to not steal from others, it's even better when we give our coat to those who are in need. While it is righteous to be honest, it's even greater when we support those who are falsely accused. While it's righteous that we do not place a stumbling block in front of the blind, it is more righteous to help a blind person navigate all the obstacles that are in front of them. The priority Yeshua places on carrying out righteous acts or doing a positive mitzvah, a whole, meaning a holy obligation that God has put on his people. The priority that Yeshua places on such acts towards others can be seen distinctly in Yeshua's description of his final judgment of mankind. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we read, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the... He will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared before you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will, say, then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into, ever, in, into eternal life. Now, we all, know that, we all know that passage. But think about it. This description of the judgment that Yeshua gives, this picture that he paints of what it's going to be like, his focus is entirely on what? On positive mitzvah. And then on the sins of omission. The righteous, according to Yeshua, are those who demonstrated their love to others by actually doing something to benefit them. They gave their food and their water to those who were hungry and thirsty. They gave their clothing to those who were naked. They gave their shelter and their privacy to those who were strangers. They gave their time to those who are in prison or to those who are sick. And of course, this is love your neighbors, you love yourself. If you were hungry or thirsty, if you were abandoned, if you were naked, you would hope that someone would demonstrate such care of, and kindness towards you. It wouldn't be enough like, well, that person, at least they're not contributing to my, my downfall and my harm. No, you'd want someone, if they're in a position to be able to help you, to help you. That is what Yeshua meant when he said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. What we want someone else to do when we're in trouble, when we're 
having difficulties, when we're in need of something, that's what we should be doing to others. Contrast this again then to the negative statement by Hillel of not doing unto others what you would not want them to do to you. It doesn't get us to where Yeshua is saying the standard is set. Such an approach to Torah, using again that Hillel standard of just doing no harm, it, yeah, it keeps you from harming others. You may not be the one causing the hunger or the thirst. You may not be causing the abandonment or the nakedness of an individual. But just simply not causing it, again, that doesn't lead you to serving and to helping others. The negative statement does not place an obligation on you to benefit others. But what does Yeshua say of those who do not show love towards others by acting to benefit them? He says that he will, he will cast them out of his presence. The sins of omission... That is not doing what God expects of you is what Yeshua says will cause them or these people to be cast from his presence. Of course, this doesn't mean that sins of commission are not important to Yeshua as well. But his primary concern is with a passive application of Torah that focuses almost exclusively on what is prohibited while neglecting or downplaying the positive mitzvah that are, that are commanded and which demonstrate one's love. Now, I've taught before on the importance of Yeshua's teachings in Matthew 5 through, chapters 5 through 7. In fact, the words of Yeshua in these three, three chapters are so central to his teachings about how we should be living out our lives. I believe every person who considers themselves to be a follower of Yeshua would do great benefit to themselves if they would simply read and reread those chapters over and over again over the course of several months to really grasp what's being taught in those chapters. If every follower of Yeshua would do that, you would see a revival and a movement of the people of God in ways that we haven't seen in generations. In fact, it often disheartens me when I see individuals, who, 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 whether they are followers of Yeshua or they claim to be followers of Yeshua, that they get caught up on these, these endless, fruitless arguments about biblical prophecy and what the future holds, what is, you know, you know, rapture, pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, is there a rapture, amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, when's he coming back? They get so caught up in that, or they get caught up in biblical history, and how did the events really play out? And they do all of that, and they chase after different teachings and different YouTube videos and message boards to discuss it. They go after extra biblical works to try to figure all this stuff out, and they do all of that while they are neglecting the words of Yeshua in these three chapters, which don't worry about the future, they don't worry about the past, they worry specifically about the present actions each individual should be taking. In these passages, one of the most important statements, statements Yeshua makes is Matthew 5.20, which says, For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now keep what he just said there in mind, and let's go back to what Yeshua just what we just read about Yeshua's teaching of the final judgment. And who at that judgment was welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and who was cast out. The righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees has to be 
a positive, active love of one's neighbors. We are required to act with care towards others. We are required even at times to sacrifice our wants and our needs for the benefit of others. Simply avoiding harm is not enough. And when we read the passages right after this verse in Matthew 5.20 about your righteousness needing to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes of the law, or the teachers of the law. Right after that, Yeshua then goes into expounding upon that love that surpasses them. And he does it by showing how to correctly apply Torah in your life. Matthew 5.21-25 says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there, re and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. So here we have the commandment to not murder. And if we look at it, as only a negative or a prohibitive commandment. Then we would simply interpret it as it forbids the intentional ending of another one's life. And maybe you could even say, well, you know, that sense of general principle we could expand. You know, we really shouldn't do any physical harm to people. You could even extend it to that. But it w if you looked at it only as a prohibitive commandment, it wouldn't matter how we felt inside again, or it wouldn't matter how we treated others beyond, well, I won't end their life, or I won't do something that physically maims them or harms them. Yet Yeshua shows us that there is a positive application to this commandment. And that that positive application should direct on how we are to think and act towards others. And when we see these positive directions that Yeshua gives, even though the commandment, again, is stated as a negative, a prohibition, when we begin to see these positive directions, we see Yeshua addressing those three problems I identified earlier. With, if we just stay in the negative and, a, the pro, and as a prohibition, that we limit our application of the commandment. Now, what did I say what those three problems were? Well, again, I said they only concern ourselves with external actions, they allow us to be passive in our relationship with others, and it gives us a false sense of being free from judgment. But if you look at each of these three now and take what Yeshua just taught about this commandment, of, this prohibition of not murdering. First, we see that a prohibitive commandment is not limited to our external actions, but they carry an internal aspect to them as well. Yeshua makes it clear that it is not enough to not only to just prohibit yourself or to keep yourself from ending the life of another person. But he goes on and says it's wrong to be angry at them without a just cause. And by extension, it's wrong to call them and consider them by derogatory terms. Multiple times in the past, in past teaching, senior rabbi has walked us through the process of how a sin takes root in us first by our thoughts before it ever manifests itself into actions. 
Yeshua here, though, by, address, by bringing the positive actions as well into this negative commandment, he's creating this fence around our thoughts to prevent us from ever manifesting those negative actions. And as such, we see that internal sin is just as problematic as the external sin in the eyes of God. Second, we see that a prohibitive statement does not allow us to be passive towards our neighbor. Instead, Yeshua makes it clear that if, if anger towards another person is beginning to take root in ourselves, if we're struggling with that internally, we are expected to not even just suppress it. It's not even enough to say, I know it's a bad feeling, God doesn't like that, Yeshua said it's wrong, i got to just kind of bury it and, and not think about it or dwell upon it. You, that's even not enough. Yeshua says you have to take action against that feeling in you. And that you take action by going to that person and seeking reconciliation with them. Thus we see that the commandment requires us to seek out ways to repair our relationship with others. Cutting off the relationship while continuing to harbor hatred towards the other person so as to avoid the temptation of harming them is not sufficient if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves. Finally, Yeshua makes it clear in this passage that simply not acting out against the prohibition will not spare you from the judgment. Yeshua states that if we are angry with our brother without cause or if we curse him, we are in danger of judgment. Likewise, if we have not sought out a resolution with our adversaries, we are in danger of judgment. Examining Yeshua's instruction on the commandment that prohibits murder can then be done to all of his other teachings in chapter 5 of Matthew regarding adultery, divorce, taking oaths, seeking compensation for wrongs against you, and loving your enemies. We don't have the time this morning to do such an analysis on each of these commandments, but if you approach each of these commandments and Yeshua's instructions with an understanding that the that underlying each one of them is a demonstration of either your love for God or your love for neighbor, and that they are not just prohibition against, prohibitions against unrighteous behaviors, but they also direct righteous actions we should take towards others, we then begin to see more clearly what the righteousness greater than the Pharisees was. Because again, it's simply not knowing the letter of the law and carrying out saying, I know exactly what not to do, or, you know, and care, you know that I, I wear the right garments, or that, you know, there could be even positives you could look at that. It's not enough. You've got to get underneath to the root of each of these commandments. And again, what's at the root? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when we realize the difficulty in carrying out the commandments, if that's the standard that we're actually being measured by, we understand Yeshua's declaration in Matthew 19, 25 through 26. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Yeshua looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Once we begin to count not just for the sins of commission, again, those acts that we take out that we know are wrong, but we begin to account for the sins of omission. When we begin to account when we sin because we didn't take action in love when there was an opportunity to do so, we truly then begin to see how great the divide is between God's righteousness and our spiritual filthiness. 
It shows us that we need to take to heart Yeshua's words that the entire law rests upon the commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. As we approach each and every commandment to determine how it is to be applied in our lives, we should ask ourselves, how does this commandment lead me to demonstrate love towards God or to demonstrate love towards another? And how does it lead me to do that in an active manner? Failing to do this and failing to recognize what God expects of us in the positive can cause us to be blind to some of our most severe sins which we struggle with. Summarizing what Yeshua taught, James 4.17 tells us, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Likewise, we find the same sentiment in 1 John 3.17 and 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Both of these verses show us how the failure to act in love towards others, that is the failure to do good, and it is therefore a sin. It misses the mark of what God's instruction is for us through his commandments. Therefore, in working out our salvation, we must take account of these positive expectations that God places on us and seek the assistance of the Holy Spirit to fulfill them by overcoming our inclinations of the flesh. One could argue apathy could be one of the, almost one of the greatest sins, maybe second to pride, because that's the one that causes us to just sit back and do nothing. Even when Paul writes about the warring conflict between the spirit and the flesh, he speaks about violating the negative prohibitions of the law, but also his failure to enact the positive directions found in Torah. In Romans 7, 15 through 19, it says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If, then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice." So Paul mentions that what he wills to do, meaning what he wants to do, what he knows is right to do, he does not practice. That the will of his flesh is present with him, but it does not perform what is good. And that the, and that the good that he wills to do, he doesn't do it. This is the struggle of all believers. It is not that we struggle exclusively with violating God's prohibitions, but we struggle with doing what is beneficial and loving towards others, even when we know it's the right thing to do. Turning back to Yeshua's teachings, we again come across his dealing with love of one's neighbor and sins of omission in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This parable is familiar to us all, but it's worth hearing again because the details are important. Luke 10, 25-37 states, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, 
and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Yeshua, And who is my neighbor? And Yeshua answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and, and wine. And, when, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Yeshua said to him, Go and do likewise. It's important to recognize that Yeshua uses this parable to answer the question, you know, what is, you should always, when you approach a parable, you should always say, look, what is Yeshua responding to? What is he actually teaching to? Just don't take the story and try to figure it out without looking at the context. Yeshua is, gives this parable to answer a specific question, and that's the question of who is one's neighbor? And, there, and really, it's asking, who am I obligated to show love towards? Because we see that the lawyer actually could identify that loving God and loving your neighbor are the foundations of Torah. He recognized that. But then he questioned who was he obligated to love by these commandments. And that, I mean, that's very, it's very typical of human. That's just human nature. We give it a commandment, we immediately look for the wiggle room. We look for the exceptions. We look for, you know, am I truly obligated to, 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 on the surface or can I find ways around it? The parable demonstrates that agape love, that meaning the self-sacrificing love of yielding one's own concerns and one's own desires in order to benefit another, it's not limited to anyone in particular. But it also requires people to act beneficially towards others if the law is to be fulfilled. One thing to notice about this parable is that the individual who's attacked by the thieves is never identified. Everybody in the parable is given an identity, except the one who's actually attacked. It is unknown to the listener whether the man is a Jew or actually someone else. It's usually assumed it's a Jewish man that was attacked, but Yeshua actually doesn't say that. Perhaps it was a Samaritan, perhaps it was a Roman or some other um, Gentile. We don't know. And I believe Yeshua left this detail out intentionally because the point was that Yeshua was showing is that God's expectation to demonstrate love towards your neighbor, especially when it comes to the level of preserving a life, it's not limited to one's literal, literal neighbor. It's not limited to one's tribesman or one's fellow citizen. Incidentally, Torah teaches that one's neighbor is more than just the Israelites. A mere 15 verses from Leviticus 19.18, where the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself is first given by God, there is instruction regarding the stranger who lives among the Israelites. 
Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 states, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in light of this commandment, it really is irrelevant who the person is that's attacked, as all who dwell in the land should be treated equally according to the Torah. But the lawyer somehow appears to have missed this in his attempt to prove himself before Yeshua. The more important aspect of the parable is the actions of the three people who passed this victim. The Cohen and the Levite passed by without showing any compassion to the victim. Now many argue that Yeshua is making a point about such individuals' concern for ritual purity. Don't touch a corpse or don't touch blood. You know, I don't know if the man's dead over there in the ditch. Or if he's bleeding, what if I come in contact with his blood? Which could have, in terms of carrying out their duties in the temple, that could have implications for a, cult, for a priest or a Levite. But some question this, meaning that's what Yeshua was getting at, because in the parable he says they're coming down the road from Jerusalem. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving where the temple was, which suggests that for this Levite and this Cohen, their service in the temple in the rotation that occurred had already ended, and they were actually going home, and therefore they didn't really need to be as concerned about ritual purity at that moment. And I'm not sure if I agree with such an interpretation. Many people point this out, but regardless, they both leave the individual for dead, and therefore they thus fail to fulfill the commandment of loving one's neighbor. And I think it's worth noting that in Judaism, these two individuals, it's just not Yeshua's teaching, that I want to show that this truly is embedded in the law, even if Yeshua never expounded upon it. In Judaism today, these two men would be seen to be in violation of the principle of pikuach nefesh, which means to save a life. And what the principle lays down is that it is, actually, if it is actually okay to violate not all, but most of the commandments if the purpose of violating the commandment is to save someone else's life. But if we read the parable here, and again, if we go back to Hillel's principle of simply what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor, just don't do what's hateful to others, if we were to apply that principle, then these two men that pass by, the, the priest and the Levite, they're actually in okay standing because they didn't do harm to the individual. They didn't do anything that was harmful to the man who was attacked. But such a perspective does not... Oh. Yeah, these men, like I said, they're, they're in good standing because, if, you, if we're just going on that principle, because their lack of care about the injured man wouldn't have been a violation of Torah if that's our principle. Just don't do harm. But such a principle does, does not suggest, or such a principle does not suggest an obligation to help that individual. But this is what Yeshua taught. The commandment to love their neighbor requires that they, requires that we act to benefit someone else just as we would want someone to show such care to us. 
And thus, in Yeshua's parable, it's the unexpected Samaritan that Yeshua has demonstrating the proper fulfillment of the commandment. Personally, I think Yeshua uses the Samaritan rather than a non-Levitical Jew, because the normal order of when you divide out the people of Israel would have said priest, Levite, Jew. But Yeshua doesn't follow that normal pattern. He goes priest, Levite, and then he throws in a Samaritan. I think this is to drive home that righteousness is not tied to an ethnic or a national identity. It's not the result of one's birth, but it's linked to one's heart and the actions that proceed from it. Now I'm hopeful this message this morning provokes everyone to consider the nature of their hearts and what sin of the flesh their spirit may be wrestling against. In our walk as disciples of Yeshua, it's important that we undertake this examination continually in order to seek sanctification by the Ruach HaKodesh. Our sins against the commandments that place restrictions on our behavior are often the easiest to discern and the easiest to resist because they deal primarily with, again, with our external selves. But we cannot stop with only these, being content to simply not do what we don't want done to us. We must also examine ourselves to identify the more evasive and the less obvious sins of omission. Those instances where we should act in love towards others, but we fail to do so. These sins often deal with our inner selves because they require more of us and they get to the matters of the heart more directly. And when you hear one of us acknowledge that everyone sins every day, we, all three of us teach that. And I know in the past there's been people that's ruffled some people's feathers. But it's true. And what I would point out is, you know, when people, when we usually say that, I think a lot of people go again to those external sins of commission. And they think about those types of things. Like, well, again, I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't, you know, whatever it might be. That's usually what they start thinking about. But, we, but when we say everyone sins daily, we're, we're including those, but it's also this category of acts of omission, the lack of righteous actions on our part because we don't want to take the time or to make the sacrifices to place God or others above ourselves. In order to identify these areas of unrighteousness in our lives, to discover the sins that perhaps are unknown even to ourselves, each of us needs to do two things. First, pray that God would show you the things you have left undone each day. It's, it's easy to remember to ask for forgiveness for the sins that are undone. But and that's a good thing to do. We all should do that. But in addition to just asking for forgiveness, we got to seek to improve. We, we need to seek to, be, to follow that, become the shadow of Yeshua, the image of Yeshua that we're called to be. And therefore, we should be praying as well, not just forgiveness, but show us what are the undone things. Because only God knows our hearts and our thoughts and can show us the darkness that still resides in our flesh that wars, wars against the Spirit. Psalms 139, 23 through 24 states, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any wicked way within me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Secondly, along with prayer, we need to be reading his word every day and asking God to open our eyes to what we have missed in the past. To see how in each of the commandments and in each of the prophetic words, 
there is an underlying call to love God and to love our neighbors through our actions and our thoughts. God's word will teach you not only what is prohibited by him, but what is required by him. And it will shine a light on areas we've missed in the past. As Hebrews 4, 12-13 states, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Living out the golden rule is not easy. It requires us to rebel against our own flesh, especially its desire to be inward focused and to be inactive. Yet it is the foundation of Torah and the prophets. We need to take to heart that the call to love our neighbors ourselves requires much more than simply not doing harm to someone else. It requires us to actively seek out their benefit, even to the point that, again, at times we may need to sacrifice our own desires, our hopes, our materials, and our needs in order to benefit them. Let us conclude with the command to love one another as it is spoken in 1 John 4, 7-11 through and 20-21. through Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Amen. It's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs, and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, and acknowledge our thanks before the King over kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven, establishes earth's foundation, and the seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our King, there is nothing beside him, as it is written in his Torah. And you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen. Amen. Amen.